0: Hey there, it's Martine. In the wake of the anniversary of 9-11, this question has come up about whether the U.S. will ever get back to what felt like a brief moment of national unity just after the attacks. Of course, that unity didn't last, and it didn't include everyone. It brought new problems along with it that are still with us today. But for a moment, it seemed like political divisions were set aside, it's something that a few of my colleagues have been thinking about a lot on this 20th anniversary of 9-11, and for a surprising reason. It goes back to a man who was on center stage at a Major League Baseball game just a few weeks after the attacks. So they set out to find him. You're about to hear the first part of the special two-part series. And just a heads up, there are some detailed discussions of the September 11th attacks and some other difficult material. So please take care. Part one begins after another, more recent moment of turmoil for the country. Okay, here it is. It was early June,
1: 2020. A little more than a week after George Floyd was killed. I couldn't stop watching the coverage of the protest. I'd been up 21 hours straight. No plans to call it a night. Some of my friends were awake too. And we ended up talking on the phone. One of them asked this question. Do you remember a time when a cop made you feel something other than fear? Do I remember a time... When a cop made me feel something other than fear. Yeah, there was a time. I had this hazy memory of a police officer who sang at the World Series just after 9-11. 20 years ago, watching him sing, I felt something I had never felt before about this country. It was like all of our hearts were in the same place for a moment. This cop. Baseball. I couldn't get away from it. I googled it. The next day, I was still thinking about it.
2: And I called someone else. The thing I remember is just how bothered you sounded to me. It was like you were exhausted, physically and mentally. And you just had to
1: talk it out. This is Kent Babb. He's a fellow reporter at the Washington Post and one of my best friends. We do this all the time. Talk through ideas we're struggling with.
2: Kent's so good at connecting dots. And then, of course, I Google it. And there he is. Daniel Rodriguez.
1: That's him. America's tenor. The voice that healed a
2: nation. You can just feel the energy. I remember this. I, I was in college for this game, watching the Yankees and Diamondbacks on this tiny little dorm room TV with my friends. I was probably the only person in America rooting against the Yankees. And yeah, here he is, the singing cop. I didn't know where you were going with this at first, but I remember. I remember him. The strength, this confidence, I don't know, looking back it feels a little bit silly. But it's like it made me feel safe. These
1: feelings seem impossible to recreate 20 years later. But as Kent and I kept talking about it, we wanted to go back to the people who were there in the stands
2: and to Daniel Rodriguez himself. They began us wanting to understand this moment in our history. What we didn't know was what brought Daniel to that stage and how his 15 minutes of fame was his American dream, but it was also wrapped inside of an American nightmare.
1: We didn't understand how God Bless America, the song itself, Has been twisted over the years. As writers, sometimes we process big ideas through people. And I needed to know whether I could feel that pure love of country again. From The Washington Post, I'm Jerry Brewer. And I'm Kent Babb. And this is America's Song. Chapter One: A Symbol Dressed in Blue. Let's start with the night that Daniel Rodriguez sang Game Three of the World Series. This was October 30th, 2001, seven weeks after Al Qaeda terrorists hijacked airplanes and flew them into symbols of America, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. The fire was still burning at Ground Zero in Lower Manhattan. Cleanup was in its early stages. New York City couldn't be new york city it was sparse and mournful perhaps bracing for another attack new york was trying to press forward baseball was part of that and the yankees were the yankees
2: they were in the world series for the fourth straight year yeah they were on this magic ride through the postseason and now they're facing the arizona diamondbacks but this wasn't the evil empire anymore not this big corporate sports giant that nobody at least outside of new york wants to admit rooting for This was, maybe for the first time ever, almost entirely because of 9-11, America's team. So Game 3 is back in New York. And it's going to be this spectacle to show the city, the country, and the world that we're not afraid of terrorists. Now, a quarter of all households are watching on TV, and there's more than 55,000 people at Yankee Stadium that night. The house that Ruth built. And all these politicians and celebrities were there, too. People who'd wind up shaping our next 20 years. New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani's there in his Yankees cap, sitting behind the dugout with his son, Andrew. Arizona Senator John McCain is sitting next to him in his Diamondbacks hat. Even Donald Trump is there, back when he was just a real estate developer.
1: We reached out to many of these people to hear their memories of that night. Paul O'Neill, How are you? the Yankees' right fielder that night. National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice. I am a Yankee fan, so just full disclosure. Who was watching from George Steinbrenner's box. Brian Anderson.
2: It, to this day, gives me goosebumps.
1: The starting pitcher for the Diamondbacks that night.
2: Hey, Billy, nice to meet you, man. I think you're muted.
1: Comedian Billy Crystal.
3: That's why I'm on AOL. Joe Buck. Hey, how are you?
1: The play-by-play announcer for Fox. He remembers how uneasy the night felt.
4: Here we are, we're in New York, we're in Yankee Stadium, it's the great American pastime, and you felt vulnerable, I did, going over to the stadium. And then I got there, this was the beginning of kind of all these serious uh, security checks that we really weren't used to. There were bomb dogs in the locker room, and you could see gunmen on the roof.
3: Uh, in the Bronx. You had the American flags draped in different places.
1: The tattered flag from ground zero flew in the outfield.
3: And you had the signs that were out.
1: Signs that read, USA fears nobody and Yanks won't be rattled. And there were
4: rumors that President George W. Bush might be making an appearance.
3: You know, everybody had heard that the president was going to throw out the first pitch.
4: But it was like, is he really going to come here, you know, with with all that's going on and you know the the security that's here but they 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 wanted him to be there and and then when that when it happened and he walked out there it was just okay he's here he's wearing that jacket
1: a navy blue jacket with FDNY written across the back and under it he's got a bulletproof vest
0: i kept thinking to myself the american people need their president to throw a strike tonight
1: and he does.
4: And for him to have that jacket on and stand on the rubber and throw like a real throw that, that was basically a strike, and, and I, I personally would submit that personal politics were kind of thrown out of the window at that moment.
3: You know, it was really powerful. And he walked off Everybody sigh of relief when he made it safely to the dugout. That's how scared we were.
0: He just had the really strong sense. This wasn't at all about sports. This was all about America. And a sense that, um, you know, the president threw a strike and we're going to be okay.
1: Then President Bush goes up to George Steinbrenner's box. Billy Crystal is near the door.
3: Um, The door opens and he walks in. And he sees me. And he goes, Billy, C." How about my fastball?
1: The game starts, and Billy Crystal is watching from the owner's box.
3: I was sitting in a row with what I call the the bleacher creatures, Henry Kissinger, Regis Philbin, and Trump. That was our row.
1: The president was sitting next to Steinbrenner.
3: An inning later, he got up, and he said, I gotta go. I've got an important meeting. Remember him saying meeting? And And then they all left. And then... 30 seconds later, these guys in like hazmat suits come down the aisles of the box with big drills and they, they unscrew uh, the front wall of the box, which we had no idea was three quarter inch bulletproof steel, a sheet of it, and they carry it out as soon as the president left. At which point Regis stood up and started screaming, what about us? What about us? Where the hell are you going with that? What about us? It was, really, it was really funny.
1: The game is a pitcher's duel. The top of the seventh ends. The Yankees are up 2-1. It was time for the seventh inning stretch. And this is when it happens. A New York City police officer walks out to the microphone set up behind home plate. He's wearing his dress uniform, blue suit, police cap, crisp white shirt, dark tie. There he was. Daniel Rodriguez he tips his hat to Giuliani and smiles like he knows
4: something and you don't know how it's going to go I mean it's I, I, I didn't know if he could sing or not
1: he looks out across the field he sees the tattered flag recovered from ground zero he knows he's going to do something incredible
5: God bless all.
4: I mean it was it was phenomenal.
3: thousand people had the same heartbeat and he rose to the occasion I remember just everyone just sort of crying just standing up and crying he just seemed like a regular guy you know it wasn't an opera star it wasn't a Broadway star it it was you know it it was somebody who uh, represented firemen and and police officers and anybody who was in the building that day regular people, um, who do not deserve that.
2: I found Daniel through his website. And before we knew it, we were going off to meet him. He lives in Southern California these days, but he happened to be going to New York not long after we got in touch. So that's where we met up with him. In June, 2021, in the middle of a heat wave,
5: I was known as the singing policeman, the 9-11 singing cop. And and i just go around the world sharing my gift.
2: Honestly, he's exactly what I hoped he'd be. He's this big, loud personality, and he doesn't just shake your hand. He's a hugger, even in a pandemic.
1: (laughs) He's about how you'd project him 20 years after that Game 3 performance. More gray hair. Seems like he's gained a few pounds but he's still got that same smile. We're standing in front of a brick apartment building, his childhood home.
5: Hey. So this is, this is a hey, little humble, a humble abode. It was where I, where I grew up on, on this block, 40th Street, in Brooklyn, Sunset Park they call this area. I was a street rat, running up and down these, <laughs> causing all kinds of havoc.
1: Daniel's aunt lives in the apartment now. She's joined us outside.
5: What does he call you? Bobby.
1: Bobby. We want to know more about Daniel, his family, his childhood, what made him who he is.
5: My mom, my mom and dad came to New York when they were teenagers. Uh, came from Puerto Rico. Um, my mother worked for um, she worked for a sewing company, and she. Um, it was Coach. That's my my auntie's throwing uh, throwing and making making sure I get it all right. She worked for Coach bags, and she made bags. My father was a printer. Yeah, my father was a printer and he worked in printing presses and we had music at, in the house all the time. What do you remember music making you feel? First experience of music is, is, is feeling the, the, the joy of bringing joy to others, feeling that I was doing something that made everybody happy, that made everybody smile.
2: It was a ham from back then, <laughs> if
0: you know what I mean.
1: Bobby goes inside and comes back out with bottled waters for me, Kent, and producer Bishop Sam.
0: Thank you very much. That's so nice
4: of you. you. Wow! You, that went down yeah. so fast. That's why you guys can't keep up with me at the pub later.
5: No, get out
1: We walk down the block to Daniel's old middle school. In front of it, there's a playground with a big water fountain spraying kids as they try to beat the heat. We stop just behind the school's old theater. This is where he it got his start as a singer at age 12.
5: I was immediately put into the talent program. Um, The theater arts teacher had a theater company in the city called the American Youth Repertory. And he saw something in me.
4: What what did he see in you? Did he tell you that?
5: Well, he thought I had great acting ability. (laughs) That was a ham. So he saw that and he also thought I had a really good voice, had a natural voice. I had a little bit of that deeper color. Like Placido.
1: In Daniel's mind, he was going to be the next Placido Domingo. Even though he became known as the singing policeman, he wasn't a cop who could sing. He was a classically trained singer who later became a cop. Daniel sang at Carnegie Hall when he was just 16. He saw his future unfolding at places like the Metropolitan Opera. Then, one day, Daniel's 19 at the time. He called up his teacher. He was nervous. He needed some advice.
5: He just said, you know, I gotta tell you something. You know, I met, I met this woman. She's, uh, she's, we've been together for a little while and she just told me she's gonna have a baby. And uh, so I'm gonna be a dad.
1: That didn't sit well with his
5: teacher. So he's like, you broke my heart. In his mind, the world that he wanted to create for me had no room for a family just yet. You know, family's later, you still got your operatic training to go. You still got to audition for the, for the, for the operas. You still got to go and, and meet the, the society and, and all these other things that he would, he would have had in his mind.
1: Daniel says his teacher kicked him out of the theater company. Just like that, he thought his dream was over.
5: All I knew was the theater. I didn't. I didn't know sports. I didn't know. I. I knew how to sing and, and act. And now I had nothing. And so um, I was devastated. That was like the darkest times of my life. All right, yeah. let's go get a beer. All right,
0: guys.
1: Eventually, he told us more. His son, also named Daniel, was born in 1983, and Daniel Senior started working odd jobs—short-order cook, postal worker. He kept dreaming of being a performer, but he was singing and drinking at bars every night.
5: That was where I felt like I still had an audience. Was well, you know, you 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 have you have a couple of beers and you start talking about the music and. Yeah, I sing a couple of songs and everybody starts clapping and, and you know, and they 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 start buying you drinks and you don't you don't really think about where you're going or what you're doing. You're just kind of trying to feel good, trying to you know get the, get that feeling back. It's like like an addiction, you know. You're looking for that that love of the crowd again.
1: There were other addictions too. He drank a lot. Instead, he started using cocaine. The cycle went on for years. And then, in the summer of 1988, he's in his mid-twenties now. He went on a three-day bender. And he told us this intense story about ending up in a crack house and hearing a baby cry.
5: It was like a bell going off in my head. And everything cleared up, as it, almost as if you know you were given like an anti-drug... Uh, pill and everything cleared up. I was like I woke up and I'm like what the f am I doing here? And I heard the baby cry again and I got up and I went over. Nobody was paying any attention. And I looked at this little guy I looked at this little guy and I said, you know what? I I got a little guy like, I got a little guy at home. You know, what am I doing here? I picked up the baby and I changed the baby and I went into the kitchen and I got a, and I warmed up a bottle and I fed the baby. And all that time I felt like I was in a a, a bubble. Everything that was going on around me was in another world. I was in a bubble. There's people in 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 the rooms like in the bedrooms they were just kind of sitting there and, and snorting coke and and and, and smoking crack and and everybody's just, it's, everybody's just dead. And I, was, I took care of this little guy. And I put him in his little um, bassinet, and I walked out.
1: Of course, there's no way to corroborate this story. But when I heard it, I realized something about Daniel. Even in his darkest moments, his instinct is to comfort other people. Daniel said he got help after that, but he had to live with what addiction had done to his family. He missed his son's fifth birthday because he was in rehab. He and his wife tried to make it work. They had a second child, a daughter, but Daniel said their marriage was unfixable. Soon, he'd leave and move to Staten Island. Then in the mid-1990s, he made a change. He wanted better pay and benefits and a job that came with some stature. He wasn't going to be a singing postman anymore. He wanted to be Officer Rodriguez.
2: He was going to become a cop. New York in the 90s was rough. I
0: hope we get these guys this time and I hope the shooting stops in the city. Shot five times in the thigh and lower abdomen. In
2: 1994, an ambitious, no-nonsense prosecutor named Rudy Giuliani gets elected mayor and he comes into office swinging, promising to hire more cops and clean up the streets.
4: No to four more years of
5: rising crime, and yes, to the toughest crackdown on criminals this
4: city has ever seen.
1: And Giuliani was there during Daniel's Police Academy graduation.
4: Graduating class, forward march.
1: Most years, during the graduation ceremony, a cadet sings the national anthem. And you know Daniel wanted that gig. On March 18th, 1996, Daniel took the mic. We found a video of his performance. He's on stage in front of thousands at Madison Square Garden.
5: This was one of the big, biggest classes um, to graduate in a long time, and I was dead center singing the national anthem.
1: In the video, you can see the senior officers looking at Daniel in disbelief. He's nailing it. The governor was there, the police commissioner, all the top brass. After the performance, Mayor Giuliani walked over to Daniel.
4: What did he say to you on those days? Oh, he just said,
5: you've you got, you got an amazing voice. Now, Giuliani is a big opera fan. He loved the opera. He would go to the Met all the time. He was a good friend of Placido Domingo. And um, so he was impressed when I sang. Um, that was it, until I got a phone call that Giuliani requested me to sing at the, the 100th anniversary of New York City. He always asked for me when there was ever a, a, an important city event. So the mayor would always request me, which which you know, the police commissioner and, and all the bosses respected. So it was one of those things where, um, my reputation of being um, a, 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 being a singer preceded my reputation as a cop.
1: But here's the thing: He was about to be both a respected singer and a first responder. A voice and a symbol dressed in blue.
2: We didn't actually bring up 9-11 with Daniel for a while. First off, there were so many other things to talk to him about, but now we're at that part of his story. Daniel told us he suffered from PTSD, but also that he was okay talking about it. It came up on the second day we were in New York with him. And I just want to say, what you're about to hear over the next couple minutes may be disturbing and has some graphic descriptions.
1: Daniel took a few deep breaths as he took us back to that Tuesday morning 20 years ago, when he got into his car, left his house on Staten Island, and drove over the Verrazano
5: Bridge into Brooklyn. And I looked up, and it was just such a blue sky. It was just it was a gorgeous day. There was not a cloud in the sky. And the traffic was backed up, and I'm just staring and looking at the sky, and and I start to see ashes coming across the span of the bridge. Just burned pieces of paper and and that was extremely strange. So I looked back to follow the ashes in the direction that they were coming and I was horrified to see that the first tower was already on fire.
3: This just in, you were looking at,
2: obviously, a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the-
1: Daniel joined an emergency vehicle convoy heading for lower Manhattan. But then, when he got out of the tunnel,
5: he made a decision. So, with my signal to the right, I made a left-hand turn. And I went to one police plaza Police headquarters.
1: Going there saved his life. At headquarters, he met up with his direct supervisor, and they made their way down Broadway and to City Hall.
4: Okay, go ahead. we um. And there's more oh, explosions there's, oh, right now. There's, hold there's, on, people are running. Wait, hold, minute, hold on. hold on just a moment. We've got an explosion inside. The building's
5: that... exploding right now. You got people running up the street. I don't want to you what's going on.
4: Okay. Just over
5: oh, a block away and the unthinkable it sounded like the the sound of a elevated train track you know you're standing in the street and the trains coming over you the L train the, and it starts with a low rumble just a really low rumble and you can feel that rumble starting to get louder and louder and then it becomes deafening And I watched this tower collapse, I watched the tower just come down. And I, it was like watching a movie, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I, I, I stopped to think about all the lives that had just been lost. People started running and this cloud of ash just started heading for us, it was, it was just swallowing up everything in its path. When the dust settled, everything was white. Everything was that color of the ash. Couldn't tell who was black, who was white, who was just, everyone was gray, and everyone was devastated. I remember there was this one lady sitting at the back of the mobile command unit, and she was inconsolable and I wanted I asked her what's the matter what's what's what is it how can I help and she said my son and my son was on the train underneath that tower and that was the beginning of days of stories like that days of people missing people seeing the horrors of that day, and people jumping out of the windows and hitting the ground and exploding. I told my boss, I said, you know, that second tower is coming down. And I said, that's gonna fall right on top of us. This is gonna be it. When the second tower started to come down, I took two steps to run, and I remembered my oath, and I said to myself, if they find me, I need to be, I need to be next to that man, my inspector.
3: Oh my God. The second, the second tower.
5: It's hard to put it into words and maybe one doesn't need to both trade towers Where thousands of people work on? this day have now been attacked and Destroyed it's just I kept hearing voices on the radio calling for help voices in pain you know police officers were trapped just Crying and yelling. and We were helpless.
1: A couple of days later, he was assigned to work at a mobile command unit near Ground Zero. They set up a temporary morgue right next to him. Daniel saw the unthinkable. Body remains getting tagged. And this is the part that's really tough
5: we brought um, body parts out because what we found it was was a torso that was brought out and, and it was just ripped to shreds Cella was a female and the doctor said they'll have to the guys do were They said they'll have to identify through DNA or couldn't even do teeth. It was just a torso. Man. But when they found something for a first responder, firefighter, police officer, we'd flag over the remains and we'd line up and, and we'd salute. The president came down and spoke from the from the pile on VZ and West
1: Daniel wanted to help with search and rescue. Supervisor
5: wouldn't let him. He says, your, your purpose is going to be clear soon. And it wasn't long before I was called. The call came from Giuliani first. Um, called me on my cell phone and he said, you know, I want you out there using your voice. We have something called Prayer for America. I want you there. I said, of course, I was doing as much as I could do down at Ground Zero, but I would, I would get a phone call, and they said, you gotta, you gotta go do a funeral, or um, we want you to sing on Oprah. I
3: was here to sing his beautiful version of the Lord's Prayer, Daniel
5: Radcliffe. The next day, I was back at Ground Zero. I said, hey, you know what? Letterman just called, and and I would go there, and. it was bittersweet it was like a dream come true to be able to be in those places that I've always dreamed of going although dreamed of singing Like I felt torn sad at times and excited at others and just I was just wishing that I was doing all of this because I was a great singer or not because I was part of this tragedy and I had to kind of I had to kind of come to terms with who I was. I was America's tenor. I was the singing cop, and I was, I was both. I was a great singer, and I was a symbol of something positive that rose out of those ashes.
1: The next night, our last in New York. We went back to the spot where Daniel became famous.
5: Good morning, guys!
1: When we get there, it's dark. We're under the lights and storm clouds.
2: The old stadium, the house that Ruth built, isn't there anymore. They knocked that down in 2010 and built a giant palace right across the street. The old site's now a 10-acre public park called Heritage Field. There's a playground and some baseball fields all around us.
5: It's hard to believe that I'm standing standing, more or less where I, I might have been standing when I sang at the old Yankee Stadium, where I looked out on the capacity crowd. I mean, God Bless America was powerful then, but but people, but people were in a frame of mind to listen. People were in a frame of mind to hear that and to, and to uh, rally behind that call.
1: Dale knows a lot of people don't hear the song in the same way anymore.
5: Now we're divided as a country. And now it's, you know, it's, it's what's going to bring us together as a country?
1: It's the same thing I wanted to know. I started to see that Daniel was still driven by this desire to make people feel better. But as we find out, this healing voice
2: still needed its own healing. In part two of our story, what the years after 9-11 did to God Bless America, baseball, and to Daniel? Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack was replaced with patriotism.
5: I, I was very emotional. I said they hurt me.
0: And that's part two, America's song coming tomorrow. To see photos of Daniel and of game three, go to wapo.st nine eleven.